Good evening and thank you for tuning in to the last episode of York's Political Mashup for this term, episode 7 of season 4. I'm pleased to say that I'm joined by three party represent representatives uh, from the University of York. We have Joe Sutherland who is representing the York Labour Club. Joe, would you like to say hello? Hey, you're right. We have... James Greaves, who is once again returning on the show and will be representing the Lib Dems. Lovely to be back. And finally, we have our regular attendee, Einan, who is representing the Tories. Um, hello, everyone, and um, hope you have a lovely end to the term. Thank you. Right, so we'll start off with a discussion of the new tier system, which is due to come in, into place in on the 2nd. So we'll start off with Joe on this one. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, Joe, there's been a lot of lot of criticism from the Tory backbenchers in terms of this new strength and tier system. Uh, and it seems like the majority of the country, I believe, uh, is not around 99% is in the tier two, which seems to be the default tier. Do you mm. think that the new tier system is fit for purpose? Or do you think that it represents lockdown in all but name? Well, I mean, so I think the thing we have to really consider is over the last um, few weeks we've had of lockdown, you know, cases have dropped by about 30%. You know, whatever this, you know, however long this tier system lasts and and if it does prove to be effective, which in my eyes is fairly unlikely due to the last tier system, you know, just not being fit for purpose either. You know, we have to consider whether this is really the right way forward, considering we're so close to a vaccine i'm just i'm not sure that this really cuts it so what do you think what what do you think would be more preferential in comparison to this new tier system well i think a lockdown is fairly uh, you know the lockdown at the moment it's an effective way of doing it you know it does close down the economy however you know we've been spending enough money on furlough etc you know it it will make almost a negligible impact in the long run to just keep it going for a little bit longer. Um, also, just giving people the support that they need. I mean, the last tier system, you know, it really did break people's backs, you know, the economic damage, you know, especially up in the northwest. That was really rough. So properly supporting people during this tier system, which is, you know, seems very unlikely that the government is actually going to follow through with that. So you mentioned the economic consequences of Uh, theoretically extending the lockdown and it it seems that the opposition from the Conservative backbenchers seems to be directed at the PM due to the impact that the strength and tier system will have on the hospitality sector. Are you saying Mm. that your your opposition to this new tier system is is really the opposite sort of rationale in the sense that you believe that you believe that the lockdown should actually be extended as there's been progress in terms of the rate going down? It, well, when would you say that there should be an endpoint then? Do you think do you think the endpoint should be indefinite and dependent upon the data, or? Well, yeah, I mean, all of this should be based on the data, really. I mean, you know, once we see it, it should basically be ended as soon as the R rate gets down below zero again. I mean, the fact that we're even considering coming out of lockdown when it's still around one point one in some places, you know, which is kind of com- where community transition, um, community transmission is kind of like at its peak you know the economic damage is 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 so serious and especially you know i work in hospitality and i know how tough it is which is why we need support for people i mean a lockdown with no support is obviously going to be a disaster but then considering the tier system is is extremely stringent and a lot more far-reaching than before you know the support needs to be there for people i mean considering that let, let's say there was let's say the the lockdown is ex- it was theoretically brought back in or extended. It seems to be that the compensation that pubs and uh, restaurants get is the basic minimum in the sense that they're not going to be raking in the sort of revenue they'd be expected to at Christmas time. Do you think that it's worth pubs going bankrupt and uh, businesses closing down at the expense of waiting for a vaccine? Do you think that's a price worth paying? Well, I mean, you know, you don't have to take it from me. You can take it from, I think it's the, you know, a, a man who owns a pub kind of op, uh, that's operated by Green King. He said that the current way of doing things is essentially like water torture, waterboarding. You know, they get a 
lockdown, then a quick gasp of air and kind of a little bit of revenue, and then they're just back down under lockdown again. That's not sustainable either. We need to actually properly look at it and also consider, you know, take hospitality managers and businesses and, you know, people that work, you know, the unions, etc., into the decision-making because it's unsustainable. So do you think that the problem, therefore, is that there there hasn't been a consistent approach from the government? You mentioned how... You mentioned a gasp of air going from lockdown into a tier system. Do you think there should either be a straight tier system or a lockdown, which is permanent? I mean, I just think they need to be clear. I mean, you know, expecting consistency from this government is, you know, tougher than most. But, you know, they just need to be clear because, you know, the way that the lockdown rules are are leaked a lot a few days before it's meant to be announced to the press. The fact that the government doesn't announce these things in Parliament, they announce them in press conferences. You know, people just don't even know what to listen, like who to listen to, what to know anymore, because it is just so yeah haphazard and, and not a functional way of running these things. Okay, thank you, Joe. Uh, let's go to Ainan. I mean, Ainan. Where where do you stand on this new strength and tier system? Would you would you say that you can sympathise with the views of those like Damien Green and uh, Steve Baker, who's described the, the new tier, new controls as appalling, um, or are you more on the are you more with the government on and Michael Gove on the necessity of introducing it because of otherwise there's a risk of the NHS being overwhelmed. Uh, my views on it certainly lie. Um, with the la- with the former, um, certainly with Mark Harper and, and Steve Baker's views on it, I feel that the tier system has been quite uh, rigid in terms of its structure. What we have got at the moment is clearly identifiable places which are having low case rates, are mixed in with other places which have a high case rate such as in Kent, for example, you've got Fannet and the Medway areas with lot of cases. And then you have other places near sort of Tunbridge with, with low case rate. And and these places shouldn't all be lumped in, in tier threes. So that's really the crux of the issue, because you can't bring the public along with it whilst you have a system which there is no flexibility. So that's an area which really does need to be looked at. I feel that what we have ha- what has happened here is we went into lockdown in a wor- we come out of lockdown into a worse tier than we currently are in at the moment and, and what has this shown us it showed us that maybe lockdown hasn't worked as well as it should have and that there are more underlying issues as to why the case rates cannot sort of um, come down as quickly as we want i mean you look at um types of people who are working in these high-risk environments in hospitality etc and not just hospitality but also manufacturing and jobs which have continued throughout the lockdown and these are older people people from disadvantaged backgrounds so so there is a case for maybe looking at do we actually need a full-scale lockdown or, or can we let the economy continue to function as best as we can manage it i mean i didn't Joe mentioned how there seems to be little consistency in terms of the government's approach. We're going from lockdown to tier system. And what do you make of the government's uh, proposals in terms of these new rules and uh, in terms of substantive uh, meals and the actual the actual uh, closing times of pubs being extended to 11, but then the, the last order is still being taken at 10 p.m.? Do you... Do you think that these new rules for pubs are a good way to tackle the virus or are they just pointless extra restraints on pubs being able to do business in the Christmas period? Well, my views on pubs are that it's safer being at a pub than being at home. I think mixing at the home is, is really the crux of where this virus needs to be spreading. So I would prefer if there was mixing to take place that it is in a pub in a regulated environment, which we know is cleaned to a certain standard. I mean, extending the times to 11 does provide the opportunity to allow uh, people to disperse from the pub in an environment which is safe for everyone because it's not all crammed in at once. I mean, you've sort of seen the pictures of the Oxford Circus, how 
at 10, everyone's ramming into the tube, and that seems to be a real spread of the virus. And to go back to your earlier point where you talked about the government's response as a whole, well, it, the government's response has to be uh, dynamic. It has to adapt to changing circumstances that we're facing. It also has to adapt to the fact that we do have a vaccine along at the moment, so we can take a few more liberties, knowing that in March, April time, we'll be in a position to really... Um, sort of put down this virus once and for all. So so I think the government is doing as best of its job as it can at the moment. Finally, Arnon, I mean, a lot of money has been spent on uh, compensating uh, the hospitality industry. And it seems now that a lot of those pubs that received compensation from the taxpayer are now going to go under anyway. I mean, the UK's hospitality chief executive has said that under the new rules, large swathes of pubs will just not be able to open at all because there is a fair proportion that don't serve food. Um, do you think that the Conservative Party uh, are to blame for not provi- for basically not providing adequate compensation to the hospitality industry and forcing businesses uh, to close? Um, it's not a case of providing compensation. It's a case of providing a regulatory uh, framework to allow these businesses to operate with COVID and that's something where I feel that the the government has failed at. We haven't given the best opportunities for these businesses to survive because we've been too insistent in in locking down as the first mechanism. And and if we did have an, an area where we could allow pubs to open in a more controlled environment, and, and let's not forget that these businesses have already spent a lot of money to make their premises COVID secure. I think that that would be a better way of supporting businesses. Well, I would just finally like to say is, I mean, businesses do have grants of two to three thousand pound available. They, they've had the furlough scheme, uh, the job retention bonuses, etc. And, and I guess there's no unlimited magic money tree. And, and we tried our best to support as many businesses as we can. And, and, and it is what it is, really. I mean, COVID was unprecedented and, and this is unprecedented times. Let's move to James. James, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about the Labour position and the Conservative position on this new strength and tier system, but there hasn't really been much coverage of where the Lib Dems stand on this. What do you make of this new tier system? Oh, I think, to be honest, my first instinct when I saw that there was yet another new tier system is, oh God, not another one, because... There seems to never have been any sort of consistency, even in nomenclature surrounding the new tier systems. It's not just that they change, you know, the thresholds for lockdown or the actual strictures in place. They will need to rename and rebrand literally everything every couple of months, and all it does is foster public confusion. And ultimately, as a result, I don't think people are likely to fully adhere to the restrictions because nothing is being presented clearly. Most people don't really have a clue what's going on it's has there been a lack of transparency from the government do you think they should public do you think they should publish the at their economic and health assessments oh well i always think that they should publish their assessments i think that level of transparency should always simply be expected there's nothing top secret classified in there there's no reason to keep it from the public but it's not just about transparency it is about communication Ultimately, the government's response has shown a lack of understanding of, well, how people will actually process the information, how people will react to changing circumstances, and ultimately, I think people have been overwhelmed quite a lot by the constantly changing circumstances and the fact that the government can't seem to stick to its guns on anything, quite frankly. This new tier system is... What, is it the third tier system we've had, effectively? I think there's slightly more than that. They just... There is no consistency to any so of what, this. So what, know... what, what do you think? Because Joe's said that he thinks it it could be more preferential to just continue the lockdown as it's been proven to actually be effective in bringing the R rate down. What, 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 what would you suggest as an alternative to this new t- strengthened one? Uh, well, I would say that... Uh, I do agree in keeping the lockdown in place, largely because, well, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. A vaccine is coming. We know it is coming now. We have proof of its effectiveness. So it's a mistake now to come out and take a hit to, well, everything. People will die from this. It's serious. But 
also it is simply oh gosh sorry i lost my uh train of thought for a second there i mean do you do you think do you think james that one of the reasons why the government's decided to, to come out of this lockdown is because they've they've made the assessment that due to the due to christmas time taking place and christmas shoppers the that lots of non-essential shops are going to rely upon the business that is normally conducted in december and the start of january well it's certainly an ideological assessment from that point of view but i don't think it's a very practical one because well first of all shopping of all industries is one that tends to be able to has tended to be able to progress fairly normally throughout uh this crisis but also uh, i want to address a comment that was made uh, previously about the lack of a magic money tree and to support businesses through this and i would actually say the opposite uh but there is in fact something of a magic money tree in the fact that government bonds aren't they're still stable investor confidence has been maintained people we've been capable of borrowing money at virtually no interest rate and because the bank of england keeps buying it up the interest rates are very unlikely to increase at all and i would support i think the keynesian method i guess of just spending until it's over and then well spending even more while the borrowing's still low i think that yeah ultimately the volume of debt doesn't so much matter as your ability to pay it off with that approach what, what how would you how do you think um how would you sort of address the eventual paying off of the the increasing debt. I mean, there's been a lot of talk recently in the press about Sunak saying that there's going to have to be tax rises and uh, cuts. I mean, we've seen a cut. We spoke about it last time on the show to foreign aid. Um, do you think then, therefore, that increased spending would be worth further cuts and an increased tax rises? Well, when you're talking about the further cuts and increased tax rises, I think the key word there is eventually. The central premise of recovering from a recession according to Keynesian economics, which it should be noted the government don't follow. So this is a little bit of what ifing on my part. But uh, the idea is that if you spend the money that you're borrowing during a recession, when borrowing rates and interest rates are at their lowest, you can build up infrastructure, you can thus increase employment, you can invest, notably, in your country. And that means that when your economy is back, and times are good, you can increase the taxes and cut to an extent, and you can pay off debt that won't have actually accumulated that much due to the aforementioned low interest rates. That was the principle behind the famous Mm. New Deal in America that restored the economy and led to the significant booms that they experienced thereafter. Mm. And I feel like something similar could be done. I mean, borrowing borrowing is already at an all-time high in terms of recent years, I mean, do, do you, are you saying, are you advocating borrowing takes place to an even larger extent? Not now, I think. I think we've perhaps passed a point of no return. I think this is more about now lessons learned than anything else, because the result of the government response has been bad. Although it should be noted that even economically regarding the COVID recession is that they tend to follow a pattern if you look at the trends of very sharp decreases, but also very sharp increases. So I don't think the economy is going to be permanently gouged to a large extent by okay. covid let's let's bring in joe in on this point i mean joe what was your response to what james has said in terms of uh borrowing and spend the government's expenditure on the pandemic as a whole well i mean the the government expenditure i think largely has been fairly necessary you know i think it's wrong to suggest tax breaks now no, no tax tax increases now I don't think that's the way to go. However, you know, much much like what um, was it James said, you know, the the only way we can get out of this crisis is by spending more. You know, getting consumer confidence up and and in, investing in the economy. You know, that's absolutely essential. You know, gre- um, like a green new green industrial revolution, that's a, essential as well. But it also doesn't help the fact that the entire time. That this has been going on, you know, PPE contracts have been let out to Tory donors on not, like not open tender. You know, there's been no competition for government, like almost no competition for government contracts in this time. You know, we've been wasting an awful lot, and I think more than most people realise. You know, the the price tag is huge on this, but it shouldn't have been this much. You know, it's you know, theoretically the economy is set to be at 
you know, fourth quarter 2019 levels by 2022, which isn't terrible. I mean, but what I will say is there is pretty rocky economic waters in the future, whether it's with, you know, a potential no deal Brexit or all sorts of other things like that. So I think we have to be very careful about where we are. I mean, you and you and James have also proposed, uh, you know, spe- spending spending your way out of the crisis, and you've also advocated, well, you've said that a, a, another lockdown, uh, extending the lockdown, could be preferential. How 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 would that work in terms of if consumers can't go out and buy from the shops? Are you saying that would 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 it have to be limited to online purchases? Because obviously, if everyone's in lockdown, they can't go spending all the that one of the one of the features of this pandemic is that a large amount of money has accumulated in people's bank accounts because they haven't been spending it um how how would spending your way out work with everyone still being in their houses well i mean um, it's not so much talking about you know people going out and spending all sorts of money on on various things or you know doing like another eat out to help out thing where essentially we subsidize you know certain things on the high street you know, it would be the case of investing in infrastructure and, you know, r- rather large building projects, which, you know, the UK's really outdated infrastructure are necessary. I mean, one th- massive wasted opportunity of this crisis has been, you know, to rework, a, you know, and, and rebuild a lot of the roads in this country. That, I think, is totally, totally bad. But, you know, massive infrastructure spending, because by doing that, you create jobs in those areas, which then people spend more money. You know, people, it gives people money in their pocket when you're investing like that. I mean, what what do you make of the government's decision to allow retail to open 24 hours during the festive period? I mean, first, I feel kind of bad for the people, uh, the retail workers, uh, for yeah. one. That that must be pretty rough to work those shifts. Um, I do wonder the efficacy of it, just in terms of like how many people are actually going to be going to Primark at four in the morning. Mm. You know. It's good to extend opening hours, especially because people are going to be wanting to buy stuff for Christmas. You know, NHS workers, um, you know, might have a late shift and still need to get some Christmas presents or food or whatever. So I understand that. Um, But I think it also needs to be coupled with making sure that the people working there are actually fully protected. Yeah. Okay. cheers. Uh, We'll now go to Ayn finally on this topic and then we'll move on. So Ayn, James and Jeff have spoken at length about the government's sort of strategy in terms of dealing with the, the, the pandemic from an economic sort of point of view. What's your viewpoint on the amount of money the government's been spending uh, and whether it's sufficient or not? Well, I, I think I think the money that has been spent at the moment has been rather reactionary and, and some of it has gone to waste. And I, I'm not going to say that the tax tra- test and trace system has been working very well because it clearly hasn't been and 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 i guess due to the time constraints that we had to get all of these systems running it it, it's quite difficult to to have an open tender for for government contracts etc when things need to be here quite quickly i think ppe was up by almost 400 percent on prices compared to a year ago so i think the government has done okay in terms of stabilizing the economy uh, personally i think we've spent too much money on things like furlough um, job retention scheme and a, and a more of an opportunity could have been made of maybe letting industries which are going to find it difficult anyway as we transition our economy into tech slowly sort of die out and, and spend the money on retraining and, and education and, and, um, and areas which have high growth potential um, I guess looking at some of the other points raised, um, like 24-hour shopping idea, I, I think it's quite bonkers, to be honest. Um, I, I don't feel that we should be asking people to work round the clock. What I would be doing is set, instead is maybe extending Sunday trading hours on, on a limited basis to make sure that uh, we can even the spread of, of people coming in across the seven days. That might be a better way to go about it. I know you haven't raised it, but I just want to touch upon uh, foreign aid because I was disgusted, to be honest, to find out that it, it was being cut. And as a Conservative Party, we should be looking outwardly to to our friends and and, and countries who who are in positions which are less fortunate than us. Of course, I know we are struggling, but the cut of of six or seven billion is 
quite insignificant compared to the amount we've borrowed at the moment, but does play a really big role in, in helping these countries. I'm not talking about money to China or India, but to maybe to um, Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, um, places in South America, Asia, by stopping my migration to UK, by, by providing better facilities, and also helping things such as famine and war in Sudan, yeah. etc. So I'm really yeah. disappointed by that. I mean, we, we spoke at length about this issue on the last show, but it, it, it's good you brought it up. I mean, in terms of, do, do you think the cut in foreign aid demonstrates that all the spending on furlough and these schemes which are supporting job retention come at a cost? And where do you think the cuts, the cuts should have taken place elsewhere or would you echo what james has said in terms of that there shouldn't be any cuts at the moment in this initial phase of the virus um sort of my view on that is it's difficult but i i do agree what james has said i think maybe keep the cuts for later on i think i think now's the time we want to solidify the economy but, but there has to be cuts and we have do have to bring back some form of austerity to pay it back i think um defense is an area which i don't know whether the increases are really merited um i know we there is provision of jobs as a back of the increased spending but i'm not 100 percent sure on that i think i think areas i would have probably cut probably a transport related hs2 some of the spending on roads are probably misspent as well. So infrastructure is probably an area I'd look at. Okay. Uh, if no one has anyone else to say on what we just commented on, we're now going to move on to talking about Brexit, which used to be our favourite topic. Um, we'll start with uh, James, actually, on this one. So James, uh, Dominic Raab has suggested that they're now the negotiations are now in the last leg and that the major bone of contention in terms of getting a deal with the EU seems to be over the issue of fisheries. Um, do you think it's worth uh, a deal not being completed due to the, the demand that we regain complete control of our waters? Well, short answer, no. Uh, longer answer, regaining control of waters is a kind of jingoistic slogan politics, and it, it, it does hurt me every time it's mentioned. I, I cringe. In the late 1980s, grants from Europe were made available to modernize boats and tackle, if it was matched by the national governments. Other governments supported it, the UK didn't. British fishermen couldn't compete with European boats as a result, and sold their quotas away to the French, the Spanish, the Dutch, and the UK ultimately is responsible for the current state of its fishing industry, not the EU. And this whole idea of, you know, regaining control of our waters, we, we have control of our waters. The common fisheries policy simply exists to ensure that fish stocks don't cease to exist and cripple the fishing industry forever. And on top of that, the idea of compromising on it, fishing is worth a minuscule portion of the economy. It's not worth compromising anything over fishing. I don't wholly agree with the EU common fisheries policy, and we most likely wouldn't have to participate in that anyways. The EU have offered less drastic alternatives. But ultimately, the fact remains that British fishermen sold their rights to fish as a result of the UK government not supporting them, and now they seem to want the UK government to back them up and what let them bypass quotas plunder fish stocks into unsustainability do you, do you, make up you, for their mistakes do you think it's more of a politically motivated movement i mean you mentioned how uh, the fishing industry represents a very small uh, share of the our economy um i mean it's been rumored that the eu is offering to return around 15 to 18 percent of the fish stocks that are caught by eu fleets in british waters um so do you think that maybe prioritising the service industry the services industry is, is more important in terms of actually concluding a deal in, in what is a very depressed economic environment at the moment? Yes, I would say that is entirely correct. You know, fishing is worth 0.1%, I think actually slightly less than that, of the UK economy. It 
should almost really be a non-issue. It's just been made by the Vote Leave campaign into such a symbolic idea. It's this kind of populist jingoism that makes concepts and nebulous ideas more important than practical realities that I think is really damaging our prospects of getting an appropriate trade deal. Okay, let's go to Joe on uh, this issue now. I mean, Joe, uh, there's been talk of uh, whether Keir Starmer's been warned not to insist that MPs vote in favour of the government's Brexit deal, uh, if, if there even is a deal. Um, mm. Do you think it's likely that if there is a deal, Labour would back it? And also, what are your thoughts on what we've just mentioned prior about the fisheries uh, being a major bone of contention? Yeah, I do. I think it is likely that, that Labour will back it. I mean, you know, ultimately, I think the country just sort of, want, sort of wants to get it just finished already because, you know, it's been going on for four years now. It's, it's. I think everyone's pretty tired of it. Obviously, that doesn't make the kind of economic side of it less serious. You know, we, we were just talking about fishing rights. You know, the, the 0.1% of the workforce in the UK... I think it's like 33 million people, you know, work in, in fishing. I mean, it's it's hardly the most kind of the biggest issue which should kind of shoot down a potential Brexit deal. You know, I do think that we should. I, I mean, I live by the sea. We should definitely ease the the worries that a lot of fishermen do have about the whole, you know, fishing quotas, etc. But I don't think it's worth what could potentially happen, which is we end up with a no-deal Brexit, which would just, I think everyone agrees, would be catastrophic. Just over, you know, 15% or whatever of of, a, of fish, you know. And not to mention, I think the, the most important part of this is, you know, 70% of the fish that we eat is imported and 80% of the fish, uh, 80% of the fish we catch, we export. So it's not even like we're eating much British fish anyway. Yeah, I mean, Boris Johnson has spoken of how he said we will prosper mightily one way or the other. Uh, and he's pointed to the frustration with the EU's decision to not uh, be receptive to giving us a Canada-style solution. Why, why do you think the EU's uh, being, very, uh, being very against actually offering similar arrangements to those given to Canada? Well, I mean, I can't really speak for the EU, but, you know, I can imagine it's likely because the way that the UK has been, well, the UK government has been negotiating has been about as inconsistent as can be over the last four years. I mean, we've gone through three prime ministers, three, like, numerous different negotiating teams. You know, we were sold this oven-ready Brexit deal, and, you know, that, that never that never came about. It was ostensibly a lie or an untruth, you know, like, I can't blame the EU for getting a bit tired of us, just sort of doing everything purely for domestic political reasons. Like, you know, we have to engage with them in good faith. I mean, personally, I would like to leave the EU, but it doesn't mean we have to treat them with absolute contempt like we seem to have been doing. What, what, what's your viewpoint in terms of uh, Britain's flexibility to do trade deals once it's left the EU? I mean, uh, Rishi Sunak has in the past highlighted that Switzerland has enjoyed uh, as merit has found merits of not being of not actually being within the organization in the sense that it signed free trade arrangements with eight of Britain's largest trading partners do you think that do you think that leaving the EU come January will actually result in uh, trade benefits that were not previously uh, available while we were mem- a member of the EU? I mean, personally, I can't see how that's possible. However, in the end, when in, we're not going to get a Swiss deal, we're not going to get a Norwegian deal or a Canadian deal. We're going to get a British deal, which is going to be pretty much specific to us, regardless of anything. It may share qualities, but it's not going to be the same. Whether or not it's going to make us more flexible in the future to trade with other countries, you know, a no-deal Brexit and, and, and things such as that, you know, it destroys trust. You know, part of the brilliant thing about the UK in the past is that it's been a fairly honest broker and worked on the basis of fair play. That doesn't seem to be the case now. You know, it also considering like the standards, our future standards of our product, you know, that's part of the government's pitch is that we want to kind of like make things a bit cheaper so we're a bit more competitive. Well, if, if countries don't know 
what our standards are, how on earth are they going to be able to properly engage with us on a basis of trust and kind of equal footing? Okay, thank you, Jay. Let's go to Ireland on this issue. Ireland, uh, what do you make of the fact that these negotiations seem to be hinging, the success is hinging on uh, the uh, disagreements over fisheries? And also, what do you make of the prospects of Britain once we've left the EU and forging new deals with independent trading nations? So, to be honest, before Brexit, I, I didn't really have an idea about fisheries and, and fishing, but it's something that's piped my interest. And I've been watching a documentary on the BBC, um, Cornwall Fishing Life, and it's given me a real sense about how these communities play a really big part in giving identity and a soul to, to a lot of the Cornwall, Devon, East Anglian coast, even up towards Scotland and, and wherever. And I don't think we should sell out our fishing. I, I really don't. I, even though it's um, a tenth of them, 1%, still there are communities, there are towns, there are livelihoods which, which are dependent on getting a, a good deal. People didn't vote for Brexit to still be entangled with eu red tape with eu um, red laws as well people voted for brexit to have a clean slate and to regain our coastline i, I think i read that at the moment we only control 12 miles of our coastline outwards but before but if we did have a um, a free trade agreement not free trade um, a deal which goes back to before the time we were in the EU, it would be at 200 miles. So there is a lot of um, coastline that we don't currently control, which we ought to. And in terms of the fishing, the EU's deal, quite frankly, is is well below par. Out of the fishing stocks they have at the moment, they've only offered um, 15 to 20%. I mean, people didn't vote for Brexit in Cornwall or Devon. To, to regain only that much. I think the EU side has to be a lot more flexible on that. And, do you, and to do the you point... Think, do, you, do you think, Ireland, part of the problem is what James sort of referenced earlier on in, in terms of answering this question is that Britain sold out its fishing industry long ago in terms of giving quotas to European countries and now it seems that it's going to be very tough to actually regain control of these quotas which have already been sold off. Well, the quotas were sold off in an era where globalisation wasn't at its peak, in an era where the politics of the EU were being a lot more friendly. And at the time, fishing was an industry which was still really quite big and and only reducing, and has only been reducing really substantially over the last sort of, 20 years or so. So where we are at the moment, where it is life or death really for these fishermen, if we get a bad deal these fishermen aren't going to have a future and that's really at the crux of it and and, and whilst I do agree that some of our, our fish, fish, a fair few of them um, certainly saw the exotic fishes are sold into Europe, there hopefully does need to be a resolution which allows fishing to continue and thrive, which, which is the real main thing. Looking mm-hmm. at the point um, you touched upon regarding um, can we prosper outside the EU well, I think we can. I think the fact that we've already secured deals with Switzerland, Canada, Iceland, Norway, um, Japan, Israel, Kenya, just shows the breadth of, of countries we were able to reach out into. And I know these are not the really big countries, but they provide a platform to allow us to go and tap into the, hopefully, the American market, hopefully tap into the Asian market, which will be the bearer of growth over the next 20 to 30 years. And that's where we should be looking. Uh, James, would would you like to respond to what Ireland has said? Because th- th- there are differences in terms of what you and Joe have said in yes. terms of your response. The first one I'd like to point out is the 12 miles that, you know, is control, 12 nautical miles to put it, you know, to not be confused with, you know, not nautical miles, uh, are our territorial waters. They are our borders, effectively. And the fact we can fish beyond those is a result of the common fisheries policy. We, You can't just sail out 200 miles into international waters and claim that this is mine now. That isn't how it works. Uh, but more to what was said uh, later regarding the... 
Well, the community's issue actually is one that I sympathize with because I well, I don't remember this, it was before my time, but I'm knowledgeable about what happened to mining communities after Thatcher uh, let the mines collapse. And But ultimately, these things need to happen and they will need to be phased out in time. You cannot, you know, if an industry cannot sustain itself, you're going to need to begin going into measures. Uh, and also regarding, you know, talking about trading deals at large, there's not a single deal that we have negotiated with a non-EU country that is not numerically inferior to deals the EU had with those countries. We already had the best deal. That deal was EU membership. And there's been so much an approach on the negotiating table on our side of trying to have our cakes and eat it too. The clean break is always there if we want it, but it'd be economically disastrous, so people naturally don't want to be involved. And also, the idea that he said that, you know, people didn't vote for Brexit to be entangled in any web of the EU's is actually misinformation, because at the time of the Brexit campaign, you know, Nigel Farage was campaigning for the Norway model. People didn't vote for Brexit, or at least not everyone voted for Brexit, not enough to make the majority for Brexit won, on the backs of the idea that we would jump off a cliff, effectively, of removing ourselves from every single common European Okay. Yeah, I mean, before Einan, before you come back to that, Joe, what 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 was your reaction to what Einan said in, about the fisheries and uh, the ability of Britain to strike trade deals once we've left? Yeah. So just to echo James and Einan, you know, fishing communities, we need to do our best to ensure that they, you know, stay as as cohesive and as vibrant as they they currently are. I mean, that's essential. They need to grow. We've seen too many past governments just sweep like normal people aside in favour of, you know, abstract ideas. So I think it's essential that we make sure that those people, if they are to, you know, if fishing does continue to decline, to ensure that those people are supported and retraining and all sorts. Um, you know, to be honest, the point about how, oh, yeah, we have fantastic deals with Kenya and Japan and all sorts. You know, it's good that we have those deals now. It'll be even nicer if, you know, we weren't about a month away from leaving the EU and we had a bit more. That would be fantastic. But the government seems to really have just been sitting on itself, trying, it's seemingly trying its best to just not get any of these deals. You know, we've already pissed off the United States with regards to the Good Friday Agreement. That's not a great start, you know. The EU we're treating with contempt, you know, these are the two biggest markets we're in between. And I don't know how we can, you know, not just not take that seriously at all. I mean, it's bonkers. Uh, okay, thank you, Joe. Uh, Ian, before we move on to talking about Scottish independence, would you like to respond to what both James and Joe have said? Uh, just briefly, I've, uh, I, think, I think to Joe's points in particular, what I would say is, there's no point negotiating if you don't have an exit strategy. And, and I believe that getting a deal is also better for the UK. But we also got to realise that to get a great deal, you also need to have the idea that you can leave with no deal. And I've just shown a few examples. I mean, Japan, not to be sniffed at, it's a great opportunity to build partnerships with a leader in tech, a leader in these next technologies which are going to drive innovation and growth in in the future so so i don't believe that the idea of having a no deal is the end of the world although ideally we should be getting a deal and the government is focused on getting a deal and and i do believe that the fisheries and, and the level playing field arguments hopefully can level themselves out through uh, the eu side showing a bit more flexibility as they have as much to lose as maybe we do and that's something which is underreported. Okay, thank you, Aiden. Uh We're now going to move to our last topic, which is uh, Scottish independence. And we'll start with Joe on this one. Uh, Joe, so what do you make of what Nicola Sturgeon has said in terms of the offer of free school meals to all primary school pupils in Scotland if they are successful in uh, being the largest party in the Hollywood elections in May? Do you think that they should... Uh, put these free school meals in place immediately, like Douglas Ross, the leader of the Scottish Conservatives, has said? Or do you think that it's uh, acceptable for there to be this well, delay? 
Oh, I mean, it, it's utterly disgusting. I mean, it, and I feel like this is something which will unite me, Ayn, and James in that, you know, this is a totally cynical political game being played by the SNP. You know, it's a graft for for independence, pretty much. It, it has no real point to it. You know, and that's also taken into consideration how the SNP has essentially abandoned its young people, you know, with rich students three and a half times more likely to go to uni at 18, which is, you know, one uh, one times higher than the rest of the country. You know, it's 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 beyond callous, in my opinion. Okay, thank you. And in terms of, you know, you mentioned that you, you, you thought it's an issue that both you, James, and Arnon could agree upon. I mean, what do you make of what Nicola Sturgeon has said about uh, any opposition to the second referendum being unsustainable if they are overwhelmingly successful in these elections in May? Do you think it's only a matter of time before there's independence? Uh, well, I mean, you know, it seems like Boris Johnson is doing his best job at making that true. I mean, you know, I do just think it's the fact that people in Scotland have very much been ignored for a very long time. I mean, I'll, I'll even take responsibility. You know, Labour didn't do enough when they were in charge of Scotland to ensure that people felt heard. I mean, I don't think independence is, you know, I- inevitable, but you know, it's becoming more and more likely by the day. Okay. Thank you, Joe. Uh, let's go to Ireland on now on this issue. I mean, Ireland. Um, the Scottish Secretary Alistair Jack has said that there should be another referendum in 25 or 40 years' time, um, rather than imminently. Uh, what do you make of Sturgeon's renewed calls for another referendum, and then also uh, what Joe has spoken about in terms of uh, the school meals pledge? Well, I think that it's really opportunistic at the moment for Sturgeon to be pressing ahead with the independence argument. Firstly, while we are in in amongst the pandemic, which she's actually performed quite poorly on it. I mean, if you look at the deficit in Scotland compared to the UK, um, sort of around in November, they were around 50 50 rather than compared to 40 per million. And you see sort of the test and protect system, again, having errors, which are overestimating the amount of people which have been tested. So, so again, uh, she's taking the eye off the ball to focus on independence, an argument which, in my mind, was settled back in 2014. You cannot be, continue to run an argument again and again until you win. How is that sort of democratic? It, it, it really isn't. And I think on the wider point of independence, um, there was a real advantage for Scotland to be staying in the Union. Um, whilst I believe that we could offer a bit more in terms of devolution to help that, it's also in terms of the SNP's responsibility to make sure that they use the powers that be to actually help strengthen the Scottish economy, improve its education, health and education and prosperity even has really declined under Sturgeon's leadership. And it, it has been a testament of the missed opportunities that they sort of have had. Okay, thank you, Ayn. Uh Let's now go to James. Uh, James, I mean, would you echo what Joe and Ayn have said on the issue? I would echo what Joe said, I think, to a certain extent, especially regarding, first of all, the free school meals pledge, because... The SNP command an ethical majority to do so. I mean, look at the sanitary products bill, which actually primarily faced opposition from within the SNP. It is a transparent political ploy designed to help them keep power. They have support from every other party to do it, and yet they're not doing it because they want to hold it for ransom. And they don't even need it. SNP support is only going up in Scotland, so the fact that they're doing it without even needing to, I think, speaks to a contemptible character of the SNP's politicians. But regarding the prospect of another independence referendum, whilst I would agree that now is not the time, Jesus Christ, we're in the middle of a national crisis, it's entirely the wrong sentiment from Ayn, and I think that uh, we, the idea of just rerunning the argument, what do you call an election? Democracy is an ongoing process. It has been more than five years since the last Scottish independence referendum. I think it was in 2014. We've had an ungodly number of general elections since then. Holyrood elections are upcoming. 
set a large amount of people who previously would have been unable to vote are able to vote now. The idea that we should just suppress a second independence referendum and hope it goes away is just going to lead to a preet of what happened in Ireland, where eventually the IPP, after being ignored for so long, got replaced by Sinn Féin, and things went badly from there. Mm-hmm. I think you all probably know the history. Do you, do you think that the comparison between elections and referendums can be made in the sense that referendums are votes on changing constitution tend to be votes on changing constitutional arrangements whereas elections don't really serve that purpose do you think it it's fair from those who are against enough referendum to say that you had a vote on a very key constitutional issue only recently and therefore it's only fair that there's a bit of time before another vote is held or are you saying that that's only going to increase support for independence. Uh, well, I do agree that, you know, I don't think referendums should be the go-to solution for issues, and I don't think, you know, having lots of referendums is necessarily good for a democracy, but I think it's something slightly different when Scotland keeps electing either the majority of their Westminster seats or a plurality of their Holyrood seats, a majority of include the Scottish Greens who do support independence, and are set to actually win a majority in Holyrood, an impressive feat, this, you, given they use a proportional representation system and I think ultimately it has been promised the Scottish people keep voting for it and I think ultimately that has to be respected it's the will of the people you might say okay thank you James uh finally on this issue I mean Joe the Ipsos Mori um have conducted recently polls uh from the 11th to the 15th of November and they found that 74% of Scots think that Sturgeon has done a good job uh, in terms of her, the way she's dealt with the, pa- the, the pandemic, uh, which is actually very uh, contrast drastically with Johnson's approval ratings, which seem to be down at 19%. And then when you look at the actual official figures for how Scotland's dealt with the virus, they they have around 50.5 deaths per million in Scotland in the week up to the 15th of November compared to 40.6 in England. I mean, why why do you think there's such a large disparity in terms of the approval ratings of both leaders and how they've handled the virus? Well, I mean, I think Sturgeon has quite a significant advantage in the way that most things that go wrong, she can just point at Boris Johnson and say, yeah, but look how shit he's doing. You know, Boris Johnson, I think it's pretty irrefutable, has bungled this whole thing. You know, whether it's the massive amounts of cronyism, the huge delays, going on a bloody holiday in the middle of this thing, missing a bunch of Cobra meetings, that is just quintessential incompetence. That's unexcusable. Sturgeon, on the other hand, you know, she's definitely been more consistent in her messaging. She's definitely been a bit more, you know, a bit more personable and a bit more straightforward with this whole thing. I don't think they've done a good job. Of course they haven't. However... You know, it's you know she she's getting her job done for her herself by Boris Johnson making all these profound bugger ups by just saying, well, you know, at least Scotland is doing a little bit better than the rest of the UK, which you know it does get on my nerves. Okay, uh, let's go to Einan. Einan, what do you make of the the fact that there's a large difference in terms of what the Scots think of their leader and the English in terms of? What John, how Johnson has performed? Well, I think part of uh, Sturgeon's popularity has been that she's actually been really open in sort in terms of fronting those uh, TV um, sort of prime time. Um, I wouldn't call them debates, but uh, fronting up the nation in terms of a speech um, with her health advisors, and I think that's kind of nice because it gives the population or, or Scottish people. Uh, clarity in terms of what she's proposing and, and also making her look like she's in charge and I think that that's a trick Boris has, has missed I mean to let's be honest he, he has been ill with Covid he, he's also been self-isolating and we've also had um, other senior ministers come on but I think that's played a role I think um, in terms of the Conservative Party it's it's difficult because the indecision at times, I think, has been because the science is changing, the advice is changing, and you have to be adaptable. Where it's sort of gone wrong, it hasn't been communicated as well to the public that um, change is is a good thing. It's not because we don't know what we're doing, it's because 
we're learning new things that as we as we go so so that's where boris has probably lacked in terms of his his response but to say that there's been a complete bugger up and, and everything has been a failure i think i think it's very wide of the mark i think you just got to think about how about what what would jeremy corbyn have done i mean god knows i mean that would have been an embarrassment let's go to nice. jay let's go i mean in ter- do you think it's really do you think it's relevant what Jeremy Corbyn would have done? I mean, it, it, you mentioned it was an un- it's an unprecedented, uh, you know, pandemic. Do you think um, do you think a comparison can be made to Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, or are you saying, in terms of that comment, are you saying that the Labour Party still can be viewed as incompetent? Is this um, familiar? Directed to me. Uh, well, Aiden, why don't you go ahead and then maybe Joe can come in as Joe did comment as well, on it as well. Yeah, no, I just feel that uh, Jeremy lacked leadership and he, he lacked real confidence. And it's it testified by his, the way anti-Semitism wasn't dealt with in the party, testified by their sort of um, cavalier approach to economic policies, which were um, sort of, in, in the hundreds rather than something a bit more structured and that that i felt would have reflected himself in a pandemic where he might have not had the grasp grasp of, of the situation and he would have been too hesitant to lock down because that's the labor view the labor view has been locked down locked down locked down spend 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 and i don't know whether those measures would have been far too draconian and it would have hurt the economy even more than it has been at the moment. So that's where my view on what Jeremy Corbyn might have done. And I do think it's relevant because six, a year ago, he could have been the Prime Minister. OK, Joe, why don't you come in and then we'll go to James. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if this is, you know, what he just said is distributed in Tory party emails. But, you know, to be honest, it seems that, you know, the Tories seem to miss Jeremy Corbyn more than bloody most Labour members do. You know, it's not, I don't think it is relevant what Jeremy Corbyn would have done. You know, we got defeated massively in December. You know, this is, in the end, the Conservative Party's kind of, what happens that is, when it goes badly, you know, that's not the fault of the Labour Party. It's, it's, that's simply, as Boris Johnson puts it, scoring political points, really. It's just pointless. Okay. Let's go to James. James, uh, what do you make of, uh, this we will go, we'll go back to the point of the, the approval ratings of you know Sturgeon and Johnson in terms of how they've addressed uh, the virus. Ah uh, well, I wish the universe would shut up about Jeremy Corbyn. I really do. I think that if the Conservative defence is that the single worst Labour leader in recent history would have done slightly worse, and I think the Conservative Party needs to heavily reevaluate its standards of itself and for the country. I think, to be honest, the latest, like, caliber of political leadership from both parties has been lacking of late. Uh, I think it's recovering to an extent under Keir Starmer for the Labour Party, but the Conservatives purged all the talent from their party before the 2019 general election. So I'm honestly not sure what face they're going to be able to present for the future. And quite frankly, I think, once again, that hiding behind, you know, the shadow of Jeremy Corbyn isn't conduct becoming of a prime minister. I mean, what, what, what does Ed Davey stand for? Because Ed Davey has recently been elected the leader of the Lib Dems, but it doesn't seem like he's so far been successful in putting forward uh, an identity for the party that has made an impact in the polls. I mean... No, he hasn't. I didn't vote for Ed Davey in the leadership election. I'm, he's honestly my least favourite of, you know, the immense crop of Lib Dem MPs I have oh, to right. choose from. <laughs> All, you know, 11 of them. Uh, <laughs> but Ed Davey, I think, ultimately, he does present, I think, what has been kind of the continuity Lib Dem up until what happened in 2019, which was, you know, kind of outward-looking, pro-Europe, pro-globalization, pro-small business, kind of. I mean, it's difficult to form a proper identity, I guess, in people's minds of Liberal Democrats, because I think we're fundamentally a more technocratically bound rather than ideologically bound party. Uh, I've never met a Lib Dem who's been 
either fully committed to the principles of capitalism or socialism. That tends to be more of an argument of best tool for the best job. And I think that does kind of hamper an identity as a party. We tend to focus more, at least us focus more on local issues. You tend to see the old jokes rounding within the party about us being the party of fixing potholes. Yeah. Uh, but I think Ed Davey, to be honest, I would agree. He does kind of fit into that idea of, you know, modern political leadership. It doesn't feature the titans, the greats. There's nobody really to inspire the country, I suppose. Okay. Well, I would like to thank all the guests that have come on. Uh, so thank you, Joe, James and Ayman. Uh And thank you for tuning in. And all that is left for me to do is so wish everyone a happy Christmas. And we'll be back again next year. And hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll be a better situation in terms of uh, the, the, the how we're dealing with the virus. So thank you to all my guests. And good night. Thank you.